Yeah. Cool. Uh, do you want to just dive in? Sure. Awesome. So welcome to the Bridge Podcast. Um, I'm John Lamberton. I'm here today with Toshin Fogelman. Toshin is a, a contemplative practice uh, you know, aficionado, uh, a meta purveyor, and uh, a podcaster uh, for the Reach Truth Podcast. Um, but yeah, thanks for joining me, Toshin. Looking forward to chatting. Yeah, my pleasure, friend. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I always start off my podcast asking uh, the same question, which is just, what role does coffee play in your life? Do you have coffee habits whatsoever? If not, is there a special beverage that uh, you hold dearly? Mm. Yeah, it's a fun question. Uh, I think I, I love coffee. Uh, I mm, I really like good coffee quite a bit, but I also, it's a weird thing where I really like good coffee and I know what good coffee is, but I also am not snobbish about it and i'm fine with like terrible coffee too like just god awful coffee is mm -hmm. fine with me and uh i'm really not particularly picky i'll like enjoy good coffee when i have it and i know even just like crappy instant coffee is fine with me as well um and then yeah i think i like to go on and off coffee i'll have coffee for you know several weeks or months at a time and then several times a year i'll go off coffee for also weeks or months and i like to go kind of on and off it and um, I'm not even really sure how or why I started doing that. I think maybe knowing that it's sort of addictive and uh, trying out like quitting it and then being like, yep, I can quit it. And um, and then I just enjoy it. So I like to be on it sometimes and off of it sometimes. It seems like a, a reasonable perspective to take. I, I'm a little bit uh, less sensible in some ways <laughs> just mm. in terms of regular consumption. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, since I know that you're like a big meditator, uh, does coffee sort of support that or does it distract from it? Or like, how does that feed into that? Hmm. I think it's just a variable, like definitely affects it. Uh, it can help in some ways, like you can be more awake and alert, but also it can kind of detract in that, yeah, it makes you sort of jittery or anxious or um, I think sort of like turns up this, the speed of thinking the rate at which you think and uh that can be somewhat distracting but i think it's just a, like it has some positive effects and some negative effects and um it's kind of i don't know i think like tea strikes a nice balance because it, like you get the caffeine but you don't get as much of the sort of jittery feeling or the jittery mind and i think uh, a lot of contemplative traditions like zen especially but maybe some others as well like have used tea as a like part of the contemplative practice. And I think that's because it strikes that nice balance. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any sort of preferences for like uh, how you drink it? Like, do you prefer black coffee? Do you prefer some sort of like, uh, you know, additives in there or anything mm. like that? Hmm. Um, by default, I go with black. I think I do like, like having cream or sugar quite a bit. And maybe that's why I like it black because it's like, I don't know, just to have moderation, but I actually enjoy it black too. I think, um, yeah, I think that like by default I have black and then like as a treat, I'll have like a latte or have like a sugary coffee drink sometimes. And uh, I enjoy those as well. Cool. cool. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, we don't have to talk about coffee this whole time, but it, uh, <laughs> it does give me a sort of unique window into somebody's soul. Mm -hmm. um, so um First of all, just uh, with your podcast, you know, um, I, I was watching your video where you're reflecting on it and um, sort of like, you know, 
conversational aesthetics and how you approach things. And, um, you know, it does occur to me that uh, in spirit, there seems to be a lot of similarities between how we go about things. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, you know, you mentioned that you don't like to edit podcasts. And um, I, I tend to feel the same way, um, even if others you know discourage me from uh, doing so. But I'm, I'd just be curious to hear you riff a little bit more on that in terms of like, you know, um, you know, it it makes me think of like Audrey Tang and how she records every conversation and puts it public. Mm. Um, and so wow. making the private public is an interesting sort of element of transparency to me. So I, I was just curious if you had any thoughts on that uh, in terms of also not editing. Hmm. Yeah, I'd be happy to answer that. I, I think, um, could you maybe say a little bit more first about what you see as sort of the similarities? Oh, uh, between our podcasts or? Mm-hmm. Um, I think just sort of candid conversations with people where the theme tends to be emergent, you know, um, like I think we both set out to, you know, do conversations just only with people that we find interesting um, mm-hmm. instead of like, you know, there, we don't seem to have agendas the way that other people might, um, but also just kind of, you know, letting conversation happen uh, and without, you know, uh, like, I, I guess, yeah, we don't have agendas and we don't uh, necessarily want to do it in a performative way. It seems to be like having conversations that we would want to hear uh, in the future ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's my sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree with that. Uh, I've just listened to one of your shows so far, which was with Joan Pope, who I really, I, I just discovered her art just before I found your podcast. It was like perfect timing because, you know, I have my own art practice and I think her art really resonated with me. And it was just, it was like, oh, amazing. There's someone who's like done an interview with this person that I'm like, happened to be really interested in right now. So that was super cool. And yeah, I think those, re- those definitely feel um, like similar styles and aesthetic preferences. I think, you know, it occurs to me, we're on a Zoom call right now. And I think in some ways this aesthetic preference is maybe um because of and even made possible because of zoom and Mm -hmm. like the prevalence of zoom and it's just like hey a lot of people are getting on zoom calls anyway and you can just hit record and it's right there so like i think that was one of the original impetuses for me was it was a time in my life where i was going to be having a lot of conversations with a lot of different people anyway and i was like oh i might as well record them and share them and um you know i think as far as the editing part, partly it's just uh, knowing myself and my own preferences and how I work. And like, I really just don't enjoy editing. I don't like it. I can do it. I'm fine at it, but um, it's just, it's not fun for me. It's not enjoyable and I don't want to do it. And so I don't do it if at all possible. Um, And I do have to do it sometimes. Like if, I, I don't know, I've removed things from the podcast that someone's asked me to, or like, I don't know, sometimes there's like interruptions that are just extremely distracting and I'll remove those. But like, I don't know, um, uh, like I have allergies, for example. And like, if I, if this were my show and I sneezed, like I wouldn't remove that. Like, it's like, you know what? I have allergies. That's my body. And um, I think there's a bit of an aesthetic preference with that as well of like really just showing what's real and uh, like people having allergies is real or like background noises are real. And I don't know, I've, you know, do you know that video of uh, that happened? Maybe it was at the beginning of the pandemic or, or a couple of years before the pandemic or something, but there's this guy like a BBC like guest and then like his kids ran in. Uh, it was this very famous oh, yeah, yeah, video. Yeah. 
and like the kids were adorable and the guy just looked so embarrassed he's like oh no like he's got his suit and he's like all professional and then his kids are not professional at all and they're like <laughs> two he's like oh no the kids like shield the yeah. door and it's like I don't know um that's the thing I don't want to do I'm like I don't have kids but uh I don't know um I share spaces with people and like I'm a real person and I have weird quirks and ticks and I use the word um or like and mm -hmm. I don't need to edit that out it's just that's who I am and I want to show who I really am and in all of its all just in all of it yeah um it seems like I mean the way that you approach conversation seems to be your own thing but I'm curious if you have any sort of like uh conversational exemplars in mind like uh any people who you know facilitate conversations for like a podcast or whatever um who you really look up to like i saw that um you had something from errol morris and um it, interestingly his son hamilton morris i think is one of my conversational sort of mm. like all-stars um but it was about like you know uh adversar adversarial conversations not really being useful and so i'm just curious if you have anybody that you look up to uh conversationally yes um you know, there are certain podcasts that I like or like have been inspired by, um, if not directly because of like the style, but just like, I don't know, for example, I think I'm, I've been very inspired by Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan of like, I don't know, I don't necessarily, I, I like the Tim Ferriss show and I've only listened to a few of Joe Rogan's episodes, but like they've just been doing what they've been doing for like years at this point, I think like eight years for Tim and like 13 years for Joe and it's like that's a long time and a lot of dedication and like commitment to what they're doing and um, I think part of how the, they're so prevalent is just because they've been so consistent for so long and um, I, I admire that like even if I, I I don't even know if I resonate with Joe Rogan's stuff for example because I've listened to maybe like four of his podcasts and you know he's quite controversial but but just the fact that he's done so many episodes for so many years is like is very inspiring to me and I, I like that he does very long conversations I like to do those as well like I think the longest one I've had on record is like a bit over three hours on my podcast so far but I look forward to like it really depends on the person being willing to go there with you. But like, I, I think like three, four or five hour conversations are great and uh, I'd be happy to have them. And um, uh, yeah, those are some, but I think, I think probably bigger influences are um, I have this post conversational moves on my blog about this, but like probably like partially St. John's tutors from the school that I went to St. John's college tutors or the professors there and the way that they ask questions has always been really inspiring for me and then also um, I've just done a bunch of circling and I think uh, especially the stuff that's more personal or interpersonal or like vulnerable or human I take a lot of inspiration from the many circles that I've been in and just how people show up in those. Can you tell me a little bit more about the the tutor approach um, I'm uh, unaware of any of that? Sure. Yeah, so St. John's is a small liberal arts college. It has two campuses, one in Annapolis and one in Santa Fe, and everything there is all required. So you don't have a major, you just do the same thing as everyone else does. And it's um, a great book school. So you study and uh, read and talk about the great books. That's this bookshelf over here behind me is the, the books that I read there. And um, I don't know, it's everything from like Plato, the freshman year, like the ancient Greeks, Homer, Aristotle, stuff like that to like the senior year, you're reading like Heidegger and Virginia Woolf and stuff. So like early 20th century stuff. And um, yeah, I think all you do there is you read the books and you go to classes and you talk about them and then you write essays on them. And that's all you do. Um, it's just like read books, 
have conversations and write about the books. And it's not, um, there's no tests. There's there, there, like functionally, they have some quizzes at certain points for just like to like assess where you've learned with these specific classes, but essentially there's no tests. There's just essays, there's just the conversations. And um, it, it's very much, I mean, all the classes are conversation-based. So the, the, the professors, that's why they don't call them professors. They're not lecturing. They start the classes with an opening question. Typically it's like, um, it's not something that they already know the answer to that they just want to prove that you have done the reading or that you think what they think. It's like, no, like here's a genuine question that we have about this text. And um, I don't know, like, uh, um, just whatever the book is, they, they come up with some question that they have about it. And then you talk about it and you sort of try to answer the question and process it. And you may or may not come to an answer. It, it's fine if you don't come to an answer, but you're like, hey, let's, let's just discuss this question. And so that's sort of in contrast to, especially with like the writing as well, like having a thesis. You don't have a thesis in the papers that you write there. It's not like, oh, here's this thing I'm going to prove to you that is like true about this book. It's like, no, you start with a question. It's like, why did Aristotle frame his metaphysics this way? Or like, what does he think about time or something like that? And, um, you know, usually it's a bit more nuanced question than that, but it's actually based in the reading. But there's some question that you really have that you're genuinely curious about. And then you try to answer it like, well, in this passage, he says this. And I think this means this. And so, like, what does this mean? And there's an art to that, to like asking a question and actually trying to answer it without um, pre-committing to some perspective. And um, I've seen you can do that in writing, but you can also do it in conversation. And uh, I think that's that's been a big influence on me. Interesting. Um... I guess like the the educational background I come from is extremely thesis oriented. And so like, mm -hmm. um, you know, I also like, I can appreciate not trying to make the case for any given thesis, like, you know, maybe uh, having more of like a dialectic uh, approach of, you know, like exploring, you know, like multiple vantage points. Um, but I mean, how, I mean, like, what do you do instead of a thesis? Uh, is it just like exploratory or like propositional? Um, what would one of those papers look like? Yeah, I mean, typically at the end of the first paragraph in a thesis approach, you have a thesis. It's like, here's my thesis and I will defend that. And at the end of the paper, it's like, okay, and here's was the thesis in case you forgot it. And now you know that it's true because I've just proved it through this five, 10, whatever, 20 pages. And it's, it's actually somewhat similar, but um, I, this is an oversimplification, but the uh, sort of a standard way to do it at St. John's would be the same thing, but instead of having a thesis, you ask a question and like at the end, you'd say, okay, here was our question and here's what we found about it. And, and you, and you just, um, it, it's, it's very similar to proceeding with a thesis, except it's, it's motivated by a question instead. So you're trying to ask that. And I don't know if you ask, if you actually ask a question, there's usually sort of a logic to it of like, well, um, actually, this question is composed of several sub-questions, and uh, I need to ask this one first and come to an answer to that, and then I'll ask this one. And then maybe you just actually don't have an answer to one of them, so then you have to wrestle with that. But um, there, there is still a logic and an order to it in the same way that a thesis would have. It's just different because it's it's open-ended and you're not pre-committed to something that you've already thought about um, but it, you know, um, it, it, you're still using logic and ordering and trying to think well and reasonably. And um, yeah, I, I think in some ways it's very similar, and in in others it's quite different. Um, would you say that um, like the best type of question is one that can have like a solid definitive answer, or one that sort of 
create sub questions like do you want there to be more questions that arise from the question or do you want uh some sort of uh finality from it mm. Um, I'm not sure. Sense. I'm not. Well, it, it definitely makes sense. I, I'm not sure if one's better than the other. I think they both have a kind of satisfaction. Right. I mean, it's it's very satisfying to reach answers. I mean, in some ways, looking back on, I've been writing my blog now in its current form for like three or four years or something. And in some ways, a lot of the posts that I've written there are answers to questions that I actually had. And like, for example, just as an example, uh, I was very interested in strategy for a time. And I'm actually not really that interested in strategy anymore because I had a certain suite of questions that I feel like I've answered to my satisfaction. And I'm just like, because I've answered that, I'm, I'm not interested anymore. I like know what I set out to learn. And um, maybe I'll renew that interest at some point or have more questions or something. But for the time being, I'm like, yeah, I figured out what I wanted to figure out and I know what the answers are. On the other hand, I think there is a satisfaction or a beauty to having more and more questions. And I think the conversational medium is especially really um, a fertile ground for that, where like, at least for me, the more I get to know someone, the more questions I have for them, like, well, how do you see this? Or what was that like for you? And I could just ask people questions all day. Um, and I, I love that. So um, I don't know, I think that has a beauty as well. And so I, I don't know that one is better than the other, but they're, they're both nice. Interesting, yeah. Um... Uh, to to go back to the sort of uh, editing thing, and you know, uh, like I mentioned, Audrey Tang and how she records mm -hmm, everything. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, you know, like uh, like there's something that's very powerful about making like a private conversation into a public one, where like you know you can almost like assure that everybody's going to be better behaved in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so, do you think about that type of thing? Like, um, should more people be sort of making their conversations public? Like, yeah, not that they should be under pressure to do so but like uh like do you see that as being a potentially useful thing to just have more conversations out there that would otherwise be private and sort of lost to the ether mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ah, that's an interesting question i think maybe to start it makes me want to clarify that like i was talking about my preferences about editing and like how i don't like to edit things and um I said, oh, I just want to put it all out there. Like I did noises or, you know, whatever it is. And mm -hmm. um, what that means is that I want to be authentic. I want to be real. I want to show who I am fully, but that does not mean that I want to be public about everything. There are mm -hmm. things that are private for me that I don't want to share. And I think um, the public private distinction is just like a natural one that humans would want to have and is worth preserving, even if um, we're increasingly public or there's more or ways to be public or to share yourself online. I think it's um, reasonable and natural and good that humans would have privacy and want privacy. So mm -hmm. I'm saying there's there's a subtlety there where I'm saying, oh, I wanna be authentic in what I do put out in what I am being public about, but that does not mean I don't have things I'm private about or that I don't have things that I just rather not share. Um, so with that distinction in mind, I think, um, I, yeah, I value authenticity. I value people sharing things that are valuable to a wider audience than just two people. Um, so I, I, I think I really encourage people to have conversations like this and to share them and re to record them and share them if they like. But um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like put that as a 
like an ultimatum or a dictum or something mm -hmm. of like, oh, you have to share everything. Or I, I don't know who the person is you're referencing. I think I think it's quite interesting that someone would choose to share all of their conversations. And but that's that's a choice. And so I wouldn't want to impose that on someone. I, I think um, if you take sort of the extremes of like sharing everything and then you know not sharing much because it just wasn't possible to share things before you know Zoom and other recording devices, even before that, it's like I think that there's a really interesting middle ground that's being opened up by these technologies where we can share more things with more people more of the time. And I, I think that's great because um, it means that you can learn more and be exposed to more things. Like, you know, I was mentioning about really enjoying your conversation with Joan. It's like, I, I, I didn't get to, I wouldn't have gotten to participate in that if you hadn't recorded it and shared it. And I learned a lot from that and found it really valuable. And at the same time, I think it's important that that's a choice and that people are opting into that. And I think there's like consent around that and like even interesting like other issues of etiquette and stuff and um, that I'm still exploring myself. But um, I, would, I wouldn't be in favor of completely eradicating privacy. I just think right. there's like an interesting middle ground that we're kind of getting to explore as a society. Interesting. Um, and thanks for making that distinction. Um, I, in terms of like the privacy thing, um, I mean, like, I, I definitely appreciate having my privacy, and I think everybody else does. Um, it, what what type of things do you think are most important for people to, like, uh, have as, you know, private or, like, uh, like, I don't know, some things I think would be good if they weren't private because it mm -hmm. sort of ensures, like, we're all behaving again, you know? So um, what do you think is reasonable just, like, you know, uh, to maintain as your private sort of sphere? Hmm. Well, I don't know if I can speak for anyone other than myself. Um, I can I can certainly speak for myself. And then I, I'm just generally not sure how other people think about this. I think mm -hmm. I have sort of a mental list of things that, for example, I don't want to talk about on my podcast or in other recorded conversations. And, um, and, and in fact, you know, you were asking earlier about that Errol Morris quote that I posted about adversarial interviews. And I don't like adversarial interviews. I know if, I, if I'm ever doing adversarial interviews on my podcast, I've like failed. Even if it's, mm -hmm. I, I expect that at some point there will be people that people are like, oh, you should have really dug into that and like asked them more about this. Like, no, no matter who they are or what they've done, like I want to be having like a friendly relationship with them. And, and one of the ways I do that is I like to ask people before the podcast, like, hey, is there anything you don't want to talk about? Because I just won't ask you if there's something you don't want to talk about. So if there's ever like some gaping hole in my podcast of like, well, he didn't ask about that thing that like everybody wanted him to ask. It's like, well, maybe they didn't want to talk about that. And that's okay. Um, like, yeah, maybe other people would want to know about it or even be good to know about that. But like, it doesn't create for a good conversation if there's like um, misalignment of incentives. And I'd, I'd rather have a good conversation with someone that's like, respectful to them and vulnerable, like is vulnerable in the ways that they feel comfortable being. And so for myself, um, I don't know, I think there's probably two categories of things broadly that I don't feel comfortable talking about. One is things that are like emotionally fraught for me where, um, you know, they're maybe actively painful for me or triggering or upsetting for me. There's a few things like that in my life that are just like very dear to my heart and like make me feel things a lot and it's not that I'm unwilling to feel things it's more like um you know I, I do a lot of emotional processing and journaling and stuff it's more like that's 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 private that's for me and mm -hmm. and, and the second is um um things where I'm aware that my speech acts will have 
significant consequences on other people and there it's not my place to say something or uh where i could really hurt someone by saying something even if it's true or even if the person would be interested in hearing it. it's like i don't want to hurt people through my speech i don't want to have negative ethical consequences so um I mean, there's plenty of things I could talk about like that that are like, but it's not it's not um, skillful to do so from a Buddhist or an ethical perspective. So uh, I think those are broadly the two categories of things where I'm like, no, this is good to keep private. And and often I would feel comfortable um, like, you know, when you record a podcast, usually there, you talk before or after and like or or you're even friends with the person. It's like I would feel comfortable saying this to someone privately, like, oh, I feel this about this or, oh, this thing happened. But it's just not appropriate to do that in a recorded conversation i think mm -hmm. um it, it's funny that makes me think of think of like the idea of like tmi and so i'm wondering now if there's anything that you wish or that you think that people should keep to themselves like more for the sake of the public that would hear about it you know like um mm. you know just uh like sometimes you might hear something and be like that's that's an overshare um is there any i mean like you know I guess like certain aspects of people's private life maybe should stay private um, just for the audience. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Hmm. Well, I'm not sure broadly. I think a lot of times when people say something is too much information, it's because it's like, for whatever reason, like triggering for them personally or like crosses mm -hmm. some kind of boundary or preference that they have. Um, and that's valid, but I don't think that that is actually like intrinsically something that shouldn't be shared. Mm -hmm. Um it depends on the context. Like, I don't know if you and I were having a private conversation and I knew that something was something you didn't want to hear about it, that would be inappropriate for me to share because I knew that. But like, if I didn't know that, or uh, I didn't know what your preference was, it's like, it's not intrinsically bad to share. It's contextually maybe not appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think on the other hand, so, so that's something that I see people like maybe over-indexing on is like, oh, this is just not appropriate to share. And in fact, I see that in my own mind, right? Like this is something I've talked about and written about, but like um, I'm a sexual person, for example. And I think some people be like, oh, it's too much information to talk about your sex life. And I, I've even erred that way, been conservative or cautious about it. But it's mm -hmm. like, I actually don't think that that's intrinsically bad to share. I think it's, I think it's good to share because who isn't sexual? Like, I mean, some people right. are asexual, but like most humans, many humans are sexual and that's, that's, that's a normal thing to be. And it's kind of weird that we'd be like, oh, don't talk about that. Um, it can be uncomfortable. Sure. There's things that are challenging to hear about, but um, it's not intrinsically bad. On the other hand, I think um, people seem, I, I care a lot about ethics of speech. It's something I think a lot about and people don't seem to care about that as much as I do. And I think people should care more about the ethics of speech. And um, that's that's not to assign prescriptive rules, but more like, hey, notice what the impacts of your words are and like mm -hmm. hear what people say about how your words impacted them and use that to like update how you speak because the words that you have are extremely impactful. I think far more impactful than people know. And, uh, you know, at the very least recording conversations, it means more people can hear them and be impacted by your words. And um, mm -hmm. so it's extremely important, I think, to, to care about the ethics of your speech and the impact that your words have. Yeah, that makes sense. Like uh, the given sort of sound that comes out of your mouth and, you know, the way that the air is perturbed, uh, you know, might mean nothing, but then the actual impact of how um, somebody would react to it. Yeah, that's something worth considering. Um, so I guess uh, to talk a little bit about contemplative stuff, 
Um, and to just give you a sense of my background and uh, how that you know fits into my life, I, I would say that like I'm kind of on this like David Lynch uh, mentality where like meditation would be something that I do, but ultimately it's not like the center of uh, you know any sort of practice I'm doing. Um, it's more like something that's like exploratory for the sake of creative work. Um, and so um, I guess like, first of all, when you have a whole range of contemplative practices, like I saw your uh, diagram of all the, like the ecology of contemplative practices, I'm curious um, with a toolkit that large, how do you sort of select and curate uh, different practices? Cause I mean, I can understand like acutely being like, uh, this situation calls for this and just knowing that, but in the long term, in terms of like maintaining all those practices and using them effectively, how do you think about selecting and combining and curating? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To some extent, it's just natural. Like these are things that I've had experience with and have done in some case for many, many years, and they're very familiar to me. So, um, I kind of know from having experienced them, oh, in this situation, this one is good. In this situation, this one is good. Or, or it's interesting or enjoyable to do one over the other. Um, that's, that's one reason that I'd choose as well. I think um, I like to compare meditation and contemplative practice to movement. And I think um, a lot of questions that are maybe confusing when you think about them in terms of meditation become just kind of like obvious and straightforward if you sort of transpose them to movement and interesting i think this is a good example of that or uh, you, you you're a musician right like mm -hmm. i imagine it's the same of musicians like say say you could play 10 instruments it's like well how do you know when to use a saxophone versus the drums or something it's like well i i, I mean i don't know how to answer that question because i can't play 10 instruments but like if you were the person that could play 10 instruments you'd be like well this is obviously a saxophone situation not a drum situation or <laughs> you know um um i don't know it's it's as if i've done 10 or 20 different kinds of movement practice. And I don't know, I know that I like soccer and basketball and that sometimes it's useful to do strength training and it's a good idea to stretch before you, you know, work out for a while. And also I'll do yoga on weekends or something. It's like, that's the balance that works for me and my body. And it's sort of similar with contemplative practices of like, oh, I don't know, like I do Tai Chi and I do standing meditation every day. Those are kind of two core ones. And then I try to do as much metta and loving kindness and the Brahma Viharas as I can. And um, and then everything else is kind of around that of like, I've done a lot with breath practice. So I'm almost always aware of my breath or like um, most recently I've been doing a lot of with Alexander technique. And so working with awareness or other things like that. And um, and then other things kind of fit around that of like, oh, this seems like a good situation to do some Tonglen, for example, or um, wh whatever it is. There's a lot of different stuff in there, but it's, it's not actually it's not actually hard to figure out because I've had experience with a lot of them. It's like you I know you just know this is a good time for a saxophone or you just know you prefer soccer over basketball or, or whatever it is. Um, to go with the musical example, I guess, like um, when somebody is like a multi-instrumentalist, um, when they start to say, like, you know, I've heard people say, I play every instrument and I'm uh -huh. like, I'm immediately sort of skeptical because like, realistically speaking, there's limited time in the day. So it's like, how much is any one of those instrumental skills honed? You mm -hmm. know? Um, mm -hmm. And so like, mm -hmm. um, if you have a huge toolkit of instruments, it's like, you have to maintain yeah. technique on them and they aren't all transferable. Um, so even tr in terms of just like sustaining and honing 
those practices themselves um like i mean i guess like it doesn't seem like you're i mean i don't know i, I guess like i'm just curious how one hones a whole complex of them um because you know if you have 20 instruments i'm like are you really that good at any of them <laughs> Oh, this I'm is not so saying that you are good at contemplative practice. No, you know, it, it, it's not so far off to say that because, um, uh, let's see. Well, for starters, you know, with that list that I posted that you're talking about, mm -hmm. I am absolutely not evenly skilled in all of those. There's some of those mm -hmm. that I've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours doing. And there are some that I've spent, you know, maybe like three hours doing, but it's mm -hmm. actively interesting to me. So I, I put it in there. Um, so they're definitely not all, I'm not equally skilled in all of them. I think um, similarly, you know, when you're saying that, it's like, you know what, actually, I kind of am a mediocre contemplative practitioner. Like, I'm kind of done a bunch of different stuff, not that well. Like, I don't know, I had a student Tai Chi lesson over the weekend. It's like, I'm, I've been doing Tai Chi for a year now. And like, I'm pretty good because I've done it for a year, but I'm also not that good. I mean, I'm like kind of bad at it and that's fine. And um, for me, um, I don't know. Um, all of these things fit into my life in a way that they actively make it better. And it's like, this is good. And so I'm, I'm probably not the best at any of them. I'm probably not even that great at most of them. Some of them I'm probably not giving myself credit for. Like I'm, there's some of them that I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm decent at that. But um, I, I kind of like that, like Jack of all trades approach of like, Oh, mm -hmm. I'm familiar with these things and I know when to use them and they do actively improve my life and the quality of my life in ways that I can see and sense. And I like that. And I I'm, I'm open to getting better, but like, I, I like having a spread of things. And I think that's true for my life as a whole. I've, I've been thinking about this the last few days. Like, I don't know, I write and I do meditation and I like have podcast conversations and I, you know, I, I started art in the last year. It's like, I'm not, I'm not, I, if I do that much stuff, I'm never going to be like the best artist in the world, for example, or the best Tai Chi practitioner in the world. That's, that's not going to happen if I keep going like this, but that's not what I want. I want like a full, rich, balanced life when that might mean being kind of not that great at any one thing, but I, I like that. It's much more fulfilling for me and much more interesting. Gotcha. That, that makes sense. Um, and I feel like the, the attitude of being like a generalist is a healthy one and a useful one, um, which I guess like sort of leads into that, the idea that you talked about in another video, which is like connecting contemplative practices and how um, by having more sort of, you know, trade routes, as Visa would say, um, you're able to sort of strengthen your network of things. Um, and so I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about um, how you connect different practices um, for the sake of like, you know, synergistic, you know, meta and dance combinations or that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, how to put this, I was talking just now about like, oh yeah, I'm like not that great and I'm mediocre and like, that's fine. But in a way, I, I think that's true to some extent, but in a way there really is a vantage point where like when you're doing multiple contemplative practices or even the multiple kinds of activities that I'm doing, they can, there can be like transference from one thing to another. And certainly just within the domain of contemplative practices, I, the more I look for this, the more I do really see these kinds of um, cross applications of like, I, I can, I, it's almost like um, I can look for them and smell them. And I, and then like, if I go in that direction, it's like, yep, that was there. And um, just a simple example would be like almost every practice I can do, I can connect back to loving kindness, for example. Mm -hmm. And like, how could this 
other practice that may never have been explicitly connected to loving kindness help me to be a more loving person or a more kind person to myself and others? Um, there's usually a good answer to that. And uh, I don't know, I think like, if you take any one of those, I could probably find an example, but like, I don't know, a good example I think is like IFS where internal family systems, a lot of people are increasingly interested in that. And to some extent they talk about being loving to your parts and being kind to them, but like you can actually send meta to your parts and mm -hmm. um, uh, that is good and feels good. And like, and then you can also have like a loving dialogue with them and see what they need and what they want and what will help them you be kind towards them and that's just like a very powerful connection and both the internal family systems and the loving kindness are kind of strengthened for making that connection and the more of those kinds of connections i make the, the stronger the whole thing gets so so in some ways yeah I, like maybe i'm just mediocre and doing too much and all kinds of things and just a generalist and, and I, that's fine if it's like that but i do think there are some sort of um feedback loops and and mutually supportive conditions that are created by that uh when you forgive the uh the lawn mowing that's going on outside it's no problem <laughs> i won't edit it out it's real time. yeah <laughs> yeah perfect um so uh when you combine various contemplative practices like um you know it seems to me like in some way no matter what combination you're going to go with there would be some useful way to combine them uh, do you like is there any sort of like a combination that you feel like would not be beneficial to combine? Like, it, and what would that situation look like? Cause I'm not sure if it would be the case, right? Mm. Well, I think broadly, again, ethics are quite important. So if you were hurting yourself or hurting someone else through the thing, then that would probably be less skillful. Uh, wouldn't recommend that. Um, I mean, a lot of these contemplative practices can have like very strong physical, physiological, emotional, psychological, spiritual consequences of, you know, they, they're real things that have real impacts on your body, mind, soul, whatever you want to call it. It's like they have consequences. And so if you're finding that a particular practice seems to be hurting you or hurting someone else, then like maybe don't do that. Um, that's, that's a real thing. I don't know. It's like I'm speaking in generalities, but like, uh, they, they have consequences. I mean, trauma is a big one. Like if you have a trauma background, then a bunch of practices can be, you know, just not helpful or can like, exacerbate trauma or um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, there's other examples I can think of as well, but maybe I won't uh, mention them because it wouldn't be skillful to do so and therefore would be hypocritical. But um, yeah, I don't know if, if it's hurting yourself or other people, that's, that's probably not helpful or, or just if it's not interesting, like it should be fun. I wish people had told me this when I started meditating or maybe they did and I just didn't hear it and it took me a long time to figure it out. But like this stuff can actually be fun. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's, um, I don't know. I, I don't have to force myself to do Tai Chi because it's fun. I enjoy it. And it's like, oh, I get to move my body in a certain way. And it like feels good and it's enjoyable. And, uh, it's like interesting there's like questions that I have about like what's happening and I'm like trying to get to the bottom of those and like I don't have to use willpower for that I don't have to force myself to do it it's enjoyable it's pleasurable it's interesting it's engaging and um if it's not feeling like that like that's normal and fine but maybe make a change so that it starts to feel more like that like that's that's a big part of why I teach loving kindness meditation because I think like it can be painful or emotionally challenging for people, even a fair bit of the time. But if it's not, it's just like 
straightforwardly like very enjoyable and pleasurable and fun and I think it is probably more often more fun and enjoyable for people than just say following the breath which I love and is important mm -hmm. to my practice but like certainly starting out that was just like very boring and like why am I doing this and like, even painful and um, it doesn't have to be that way. With something like meta it, I mean like I imagine that that's one of those things that like I bet you couldn't really come up with a bad combination of like meta with something else. Um, like, you know, like if you combine it with- I can music, think of like... them, but I won't mention them. Okay. Um, <laughs> interesting. Uh, so also in your, uh, in this diagram of the ecologies of practices, there were a few that I, I was sort of curious to hear more about because, um, you know, I saw that you had a, a magic with a K section and I'm the type of person who's into like, like my meditation world is more on the chaos magic side. Um, like I, I'm into Peter Carroll a lot and that type of stuff, but um, I saw hyperstition and time magic. And so I'd be curious to hear about what those types of things would look like in practice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I've gotten pretty interested in this stuff over the last year. Or so I think um, one of the communities that I'm in, uh, the people that are in it are were pretty interested in this stuff. And so it sort of rubbed off on me. And I think one of the books that I read um, well, I read several books by him was by this guy, Aidan Walker, and um, he wrote a book. The, the one that I really liked is called uh, Weaving Fate, which is about basically what I what I referred to in that diagram as time magic, but it's sort of like having a relationship to the past and the future that's sort of magical. And um, hyperstition is sort of uh, uh, the same thing, but with a digital outlook where it's like, um, you're, you're trying to have an impact on the future through your writing and um, and specifically through sharing your writing publicly. And I think um, to take a step back, like, I, I don't know, magic is one of those things that like, there's many of these things that like, if you rewinded time sufficiently, I would have thought was bullshit. Like energy is another one. I remember just thinking like, oh, energy, that's just bullshit. Like there is no energy. That's not real. And then I started to feel energy in my body and I was like, oh, okay, well, I can't, I, I just do feel this thing that they're talking about. I'm not going to waste time disputing whether it exists when I have direct evidence that it's real. Um, and magic is definitely something like that, where it's like, what I would go back and tell myself beforehand is like, and in a way, this is an act of magic right now, is uh, 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 another word for it is causality just causality. It's like, hey, your actions have consequences, very broadly speaking. And that's that's a very boring way to put it. It's less inspiring and interesting or fun, but it's also unobjectionable. And like everyone would agree with that. And yeah. um, it turns out that like more things are actions than you think, like your words have consequences. And I think the thoughts that you think have consequences and your feelings have consequences. And there are more effects that might happen than you would otherwise know about. Um, so I don't know. I think that's, that's broadly how I think about those things is like a study of what causality is and then taking seriously what I've found about that. And like, yes, uh, our, our thoughts and feelings and words we use have consequences. And how, if that's true, how can I skillfully think and speak and feel to have positive consequences? Um, a sense of ethics has been very important to me. So I felt very protected and, guided from coming from a Buddhist background of like, mm -hmm. hey, there are these ethical precepts, for example, or I think the Bodhisattva vows, I think of those now as just a kind of spell that's like this enormous spell that many people have been casting for a long time. Mm -hmm. 
even across universes, I think, uh, of like, let us, let us do the thing that is of most benefit to the most beings possible. And that's, that's something that, uh, how to put it, I mean, the way that I see it, everyone is on board with that because they all beings want to be supported in that way. And so like, there's a lot of momentum to helping you with doing what you want to do. If what you're doing is for the benefit of all beings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, the way that you're talking about, like, sort of like for the benefit of everybody, it makes me think of just like a utilitarian perspective. And like, I largely think of myself as a utilitarian, um, particularly in like a, the negative utilitarian sense of like uh i feel like there's you know reason to prioritize the reduction of suffering um as well as to you know improve the quality of life like raise baseline and um you know achieve new heights but you know also just like reducing suffering is a, a good goal in general and like um you know uh, i guess like it for me meditation has always been sort of inwardly focused like the most that i could see it really affecting the outside world is like by making me feel more capable when I act in the outside world. But um, you know, like when people are doing meta, you know, meditation, it's like, seems like they want to, you know, help project that into the world. Um, but what, like, I guess, how do you concretely uh, try to positively impact the world through, you know, uh, contemplative practice uh, in a way that is going to be impactful? Hmm. Well, I think Meta is a good example. I think that um, I have a tweet about this somewhere, but basically one way that I think you can look at spirituality very broadly is in turn, this is, this is like broad enough to be useful, but broad enough that it will get guaranteed be inaccurate or incomplete. So it's, it's a useful way of seeing things, but it's, it's not complete. Um, but one way you can see spirituality very broadly is affecting both perception and behavior that it affects so that you um, perceive perhaps more accurately and, and ideally so that you behave more appropriately, right? And so um, I think loving kindness and the Brahma Viharas, because from a Buddhist perspective, <clears throat> metta or loving kindness is just one of the four Brahma Viharas. There's also um, Karuna or compassion, uh, mm. Mudita or sympathetic joy, and then Upekha, which is equanimity. And those are sort of mutually supportive qualities of the heart. And um, those affect your perception so that you see people differently yourself others you feel differently towards them and that affects your behavior so if i do meta for you for example i will probably treat you differently and i will maybe listen more carefully to you or notice more things about you or feel more warmly towards you and then that'll affect how i speak towards you or how i move my body in relation to you or like the ways that i relate to you very broadly and um you know and then that that actually can set up positive, positive feedback loops where like you treat me differently or you treat other people differently and that has consequences. So I think uh, a lot of these things may seem to just affect perception, but anything that affects perception affects your behavior as well. And provided that there's positive uh, connections between those, then that's a good thing. Cool. That's a good take. Um, I, I guess... Um... Uh, it, you know, when you mentioned like the, the compassion, the other, um, sort of, uh, yeah, I'm not hip. The Brahma Viharas. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know all the Buddhist terminology, but, uh, uh -huh. uh, 
so why is it that meta seems to be the like sort of the most popular one or, or is that just my perspective from what i've seen um compassion seems like a very important one yes well they're all important and they're all mutually supportive but you're absolutely right i think meta is the most popular one or the most commonly mentioned one i think um i i know I, I would be interested to hear other people talk about this because i don't know myself but my sense is there's basically two reasons one is um uh how to put this I think I think that it's uh, there's sort of a momentum to it culturally, where just a lot of people have talked about meta and like people are familiar with it, so it's easier to just talk about that and like focus on that. And then the others, you can kind of mention them as well. Uh, but, but basically, what I'm saying is like historical reasons that people focused on meta and it's just become kind of popular because I don't know at a certain point they're like focused on that. I think maybe another reason that may have caused the historical one is pedagogically. Um, and again, I'd be interested to hear how other people would talk about this, but it seems to me that pedagogically meta is the easiest to teach um, mm -hmm. the other and, and, and you can even look at the others as like variants of meta or like meta in specific circumstances. Gotcha. Um, and so it's like the simplest, easiest one, I think, and the others sort of come naturally if you have meta and you can be like, yeah, well, yeah, you know how you do the meta thing. Well, if you notice someone else is suffering, like, and you want them to be happy, that's meta for a suffering person. That is compassion, you know, or you see that someone else is happy and you feel happy that they're happy. That's mudita, that's sympathetic joy. And that's, you know, like a transposition or transformation of meta um, and equanimity. You know, it's, it's um, maybe not the same. It's not an adaptation of meta, but it's like, yeah, are you experiencing whatever you're experiencing without clinging to it, without with it being attached to it, or without pushing it away, without rejecting it? Can you accept it? So that that's especially important, I think, most obviously for the the compassion of like if you notice someone suffering, um, can you attend to that and your experience of that without uh, suffering yourself or causing suffering yourself for yourself? Can you just be equanimous with it? And that 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 shouldn't that shouldn't disconnect you from someone else. It shouldn't like block you off from feeling what they're feeling. It should actually connect you to them and, and even be a healing experience for them, I think. But um, yeah, I think I think probably there's pedagogical reasons and historical re cultural reasons. I'm not completely sure, but that's my sense of it. Interesting. Um, so um, as, as like a musician who, you know, like I've, I've explored uh, loving kindness meditation like a little bit here and there, but it's never developed into like a regular practice. Um, and uh you know to just sort of like be silly about it since microdosing is such a topic these days um what would sort of like and for the sake of alliteration what would the musicians meta microdose sort of program look like um like how could somebody um you know work loving kindness meditation into their daily life um in a way that's like you know going to do some good uh ask this can you say more about so i could i could definitely answer the question about like the minimum viable way to incorporate meta into your life but can you say more about that being for a musician specifically i guess uh the, the musician aspect maybe was just to get an extra m uh but uh <laughs> i mean mostly just that it's like somebody who's not you know having contemplative practice be uh, uh their I main see. center focuses like uh, kind of like, you know, maybe they're creative, maybe, uh, you know, uh, they're aesthetically oriented, um, but just mostly that they aren't 
you know, super focused on meditation as like a central aspect of their life. Yes. Yes. Um, well, maybe what I'd say, this is, this is sort of orthogonal to the question a little bit, but like, you know how, um, there, there's this book I read a while ago that was talking about, I think it was by Josh Kaufman. And it was like, basically the thesis of this book was like, you can spend 20 hours on something and then you're like kind of decent at it. And you're not amazing, but like, if you spend 20 hours on pretty much anything, you're like going to be pretty good at it. Uh, and like good enough to, you know, be dangerous as they say, or like, um, I don't know, like, I think if, like I've probably, I've definitely spent more than 20 hours on drawing at this point. I'm like, I'm like kind of good at it and like kind of not amazing, but certainly better than when I started. And, um, I think there's a case to be made for spending something like that amount of time on loving kindness where like uh, really pedagogically as a teacher, <coughs> as a teacher of loving kindness, I think there's like a specific thing that I'm aiming for that's like not even that hard that I would like to help as many people as possible get to, which is being able to feel loving kindness in your heart. Um, and so there's kind of two stages of like, this is just how I think about it, but of like, before and after. So um, when you start, it's often very cognitive, it's very conceptual. And so you can start out, this is to actually answer your question directly, you can start out by thinking a thought like, may I be happy? Or may my friend be happy? Or may others be happy? You could even adapt that to have like a, a sentence that resonates for you more like, oh, I hope John is really enjoying this podcast conversation. Like <laughs> that's a that's a more resonant, like, you even laughed when I said that, you know, mm -hmm. you like, responded to that, right? Um, probably the sort of stock ones won't resonate, but I don't know, but you can just think the thought, may I be happy or may I have a good day or may my friend have a good day and just think that thought. But that is primarily conceptual. And at a certain point, you start to notice what creates feelings of loving kindness in your body, typically in the heart region and around the face, like the smile. And I don't know, there can be blocks to that, especially if you have trauma or like you're not used to feeling your feelings. It can be easier for some people and harder, but like it's not it's not superhuman to learn to feel these things. And I think a lot of, most people probably can do that in under 20 hours, probably even like 10 hours of this practice. Right. Um, you know, some people are gonna find it hard and it might, might take longer, but it's, it's not impossible. It's a feasible feat. And once you learn to feel those feelings, then anything that helps you feel those feelings is fair game. And really um, the name of the game at that point is just like feel that feeling as much as possible, as often as possible and as many contexts as possible. And that that's actually very well suited to like bringing into your day, right? Like I'm interacting with a human, another person right now. Can I have those feelings in relationship with you right now? Can I bring that up? Can I let that affect the way I speak or interact with you? kind of a high challenge level, but it's also um, not something that you have to like sit on a cushion or take time away to try to do. Yeah. I gotcha. So it's almost like uh, it's like a muscle that you have to train or like a neural pathway that you have to get online. And once it's re repeatedly or repeatedly, like, you know, something that you can summon, then that's probably going to do good. Um, I guess like in terms of just like if you were to try to make it particularly effective uh it, like how would you go about it uh in terms of like implementing it like um it doesn't matter i mean this is maybe like a sort of like surface level question but does it matter like when during the day you would do it or for like how long or um just any sort of like practical tips in that sort of respect um you know any any kind thoughts or feelings for yourself or others are fair game and you can do those at any time. 
Um, there's no special time to have a kind thought or feeling for yourself or others. It's like any time that feels good for you is, is good. Um, that said, it can be practically useful to sort of, I don't know, for example, associate a thought or feeling with an activity, right? Like, um, I don't know, like, I, uh, like when you wake up, can the first thought that you have of the day be a kind one towards yourself or others? That's actually a practice that I do. There's a specific thought I try to think when I wake up, um, which is, uh, I love myself and I love all beings. And I try to make that the first thought that I have in the day. Um, you could think that thought or a similar one that resonates for you when you wake up or when you go to bed or like, I don't know, when you're eating your dinner or mm -hmm. when you're on your commute, you could pick a time to associate with that and uh, try to think that repeatedly. That's 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 not a big time investment, right? It's kind mm -hmm. of a high effort, intensive, especially the trying to make it the first thought of your day. That's actually a bit challenging, to be honest. But um but I don't know, like if you're like, okay, every time I take the train to work, I'm going to think the thought I love myself. Like that's a kind thought towards yourself. Um, and it takes less than two seconds to think that thought. It's not a huge time investment. Everybody has time for that. You can't tell me you don't have time for that. Uh, if it's something you feel called to do, then that's that's certainly uh, like a, a small time investment that everyone can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean... Earlier, I mentioned briefly, like David Lynch being somebody who, like, I feel like, you know, he he does TM, and it's like, you know, twenty minutes in the morning, twenty minutes at night, and it seems to be like his secret sauce besides coffee for his like creative practice. <laughs> and um, again, as a sort of creative person, um, I'm sort of curious as to like how you know meditation or any sort of practice like that or magic or whatever could be applied to specifically uh, doing creative stuff, whether it's getting like a sort of more imaginal like more access you know to imagination or maybe just like um maybe it's empowerment or something like that um it, are there any particular practices that you would recommend for individuals who are like doing creative work who want to utilize that practice specifically for enhancing their creative work hmm. well that's an extremely individual question i think it really <laughs> depends on who the person is and like what their practices are and why they want to do it. I think what I would say is something like, uh, how to put this, these practices ideally would affect the way that you go about doing something. Like, you know, they add the kinds of perceptions that you can experience or like the quality with which you experience them. Um, it should affect the way that you do it. But also, I mean, I think there's something really beautiful about expressing who you are and expressing where you're coming from and how you see the world. And certainly with my own drawing and art, like that's something that I want to aim towards more and more. It feels like there's like skills I'm trying to build in order to be able to do that. But my favorite pieces of arts are one where like that I've created are ones where it's like, oh, this is expressing something about who I am and how I see the world and how I live in the world that I haven't been able to do through words. Like, you know, I've been talking to you for an hour now. Like I love using words. I love writing. I've written many, many thousands of words and all, all over the place, but like there are things about the way I see the world and the way that I live my life that I've, I've never said to my satisfaction in words and probably never could. And like something I love about the visual medium is it, it feels like, oh, this is a whole range of things that I might be able to express that I couldn't otherwise. And um, I think, uh, yeah, ideally, yeah, ideally these practices affect the way in which you perceive and then also like what you express and how you show up and like 
give you the capacity to express yourself in a, in a way that's essential to who you are. And um, I don't know what that looks like is really going to vary pretty widely for people, I think. Gotcha. I guess like the type of thing that I was thinking is sort of like, you know, um, like the way that David Lynch would like, you know, specifically access dream states to sort of like come up with things from, you know, like this, like, uh, like, I feel like he describes it as like this, like infinite, you know, uh, thing of bliss and uh, imagination. And you're able to pull like all these, like, you know, just like exceptionally juicy, interesting ideas from this like weird part of your mind that you access. And so, um, you know, I mean, like, I, I totally get having a practice that's aimed at like, you know, disinhibiting you or like orienting you towards expression. But like, uh, is there any sort of like, I'm trying to like explore uh you know realms of mind and imagination that like any practice in that respect hmm. there are definitely people who do this i i haven't done so much with imaginal practice myself I, a lot of my friends are quite interested in that um i've done some but i don't know that that's showed up in my art practice or other ways that I express myself too much yet i think the main thing that's coming to mind um is maybe a little bit different than what you're talking about but something like um how to put this how to put this. There's a certain faculty that I might call intuition where um, it seems like there are, and, and there's a few things that have been helpful for this, including especially probably Gendlin focusing, but also um, various drugs that I've taken have helped me to access this more where it's like, um, how to put it, it feels as if there are words in my body that are like wanting to come out and they're like thoughts that are starting in the body. And like, can I really like give birth to this thing that wants to come out? And it's it's an expression of who I am and how I see the world. It's related to me, but like it starts in the body and it's often nonverbal or like there's an intuition or a hunch of like, oh, there's a there there. And like, how, what is that? And how do I put it into words? And it wants to come out often very verbally, maybe just because I've done so much with words and that's how I express myself, but there's a there there. and. Um, I think over the years, I've gotten better at like noticing when that's present, like listening to it and being able to speak it. And then I try to share it. A lot of my tweets or other writing come from that place. And um, sometimes I'll just write it down for me privately or share it with a few friends that will resonate. I don't always share things publicly again. Um, mm -hmm. But like, I want to honor whatever those things are and express them. And um, often there's like real wisdom in the things that come through from that. And it feels like it's my duty to share that with the world and also really to live what I find within myself. It's like, I have to live that first and foremost, that wisdom that I find and make that the basis of my life. And, um, that's essential for me. And it might also be helpful to others. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I guess, uh, to, talk about service stuff a little bit so like um i appreciate that your podcast specifically like it seems i think you said that the theme that has emerged is basically uh you know showcasing different service oriented projects um that people are doing and so um first of all i'm just curious um what some of the most inspiring ones you've come across are but then also i'd like to talk about um like i guess art as a service project and um how you think of art as a service yeah, I think the service is definitely the best word that I've found for this and why I use it and one, one that resonates for me, but it might not resonate for people. And it also might 
exclude certain meanings that I mean, that I actually do mean from the connotations of the word, which, you know, is a risk with any word, but um, certainly with this word. And um, in some cases, I mean things like they literally have a nonprofit project, or there's like some world saving ambition they have, or like a thing that they're trying to do explicitly with the intention of helping people. But the way that I think about service certainly includes that, but it is not limited to that. So I think, for example, art or making music or like just having a beautiful conversation helps the world in, in a certain way. And so uh, I'm definitely including these this broader interpretation of like anything that's a benefit to others is service in my view. And it doesn't have to be, um, you know, some large thing or something that's like completely legible. Often when we try to find our way of being service in the world, like we were very confused by it for years. We're like, what is this? I don't, I, I don't know, how do I do this? But often I think, I don't know that this is always true, but it seems like broadly true to me that people really want to help others and want to be of service with their time and energy and, and, and want to be of benefit and that they're trying to seek. It seems to me that most people, maybe even everyone are trying to seek a way of being in the world that is of benefit to others, but is also in alignment with who they are and what their skills are and what their background is and, and, and what they enjoy and what they like. And um, the more that I see that, things that way, the more I can help people to do that and really actualize, help them actualize what they want to do in the world, which is something that's very inspiring and motivating for me personally. Um, yeah, so I think from that perspective, a lot of the people that I have on, they do have some kind of legible service project, but, but, but even if they don't, I see something in them. It's like, oh, this person is trying to help other people in a way that I can see and recognize and I'm curious about and want to learn more about and want to showcase for the world. And so I, I do value that and want to help people like that. Um, most inspiring, I think there's two, there's two, probably two projects right now that um, are very inspiring to me personally and that I'm actively trying to help. So I'll mention those. One is my friend Jessica Watson Miller, who I had on. She has um, a project psychcrisis.org. You can look it up and she's in pretty early stages of her project, but she's wanting to help people um, really help the world at a systems level refine how we deal with psychiatric crises and how we help people that are having an, an intense mental health issues. And like, that's a very thorny problem, which she knows from experience. I mean, I talk about that with her on the podcast, but like, it's, it's just systemically challenging. And it's also locally challenging with the people you care about. And I, you know, I've, I've, had people in my life that have these kinds of problems. And it's like, there are not easy, obvious solutions to those problems and um, how to address that is not clear. And yet she is tackling that. So I feel very grateful to her for looking at that and want to help her with that. Also my friend North Byrne, who's coming on the podcast this month, he is running these long retreats, like three month retreats for people to go deeper into contemplative practice. And uh, I got to spend some time with him at his last retreat that he ran for about a week and just very inspired by the work he's doing there. I think for me, the opportunity to do extended meditation retreat, I did a retreat that was like, uh, basically in the first half of 2020, I did about 130 days of retreat in a row and which is, you know, several months of practice. And like that, that transformed my life, that transformed my life. And I think a lot of the, you know, not, not to like compliment myself, but like, I think a lot of the vitality that, I see in my own life and that I think other people see comes from that period of practice of like cutting through different obstacles and like confusions and like learning new skills that would help me show up in the world. And 
it's very obvious to me causally <laughs> excuse me that um that this this my ability to serve the world in a way that's beneficial to others and joyful for me comes from that time um and so i want to give other people that opportunity as well and, and really have those deep transformations from contemplative practice that that just take time i mean you can't do those those you you can but it's very hard and unlikely that you would have those transformations in like one day of practice or like a week of practice even like you should definitely do a day of practice or a week of practice and the kinds of deep life changing long lasting impacts that you can have from like months or even years of practice or just it's a whole other ball game uh and so uh, he's giving people that opportunity through doing these intensive multi-month retreats and so i want to help him do that as well and those are, those are two that are particularly inspiring to me um yeah um i i guess like um for some context around the the art question like I feel like you know i've always been inspired by like uh communities like the effective altruists and um sort of these like very you know quantified types uh, who are trying to make impacts in the world and like for a while i was kind of like you know is doing music or art actually doing anything of value and like sure people get to listen to it and enjoy it but like you know uh i feel like it's less immediately it's less obvious that it's like actually concretely impactful like um, maybe somebody is listening to a song and enjoying it, um, and it like improves their subjective uh, well-being. But like, um, I guess like, I'm I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Like, um, just more on how uh, art would be a service project um, more concretely. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think you know you mentioned the effect of altruists just now and the utilitarians earlier and think the effect of altruists or, you know, I don't know how they think about it, but it seems to me to be a kind of utilitarian project and mm -hmm. yeah, very focused on measurement. And um, on the one hand, I'm sympathetic to that. It's like reasonable to want to measure things and it's helpful to want to measure things and even good to measure things and try to have measurable positive impacts. To the extent that that's possible, I'm very much in favor of that and I'm sympathetic to what they're doing. Um, on the other hand, maybe because of contemplative practice, maybe because of going to St. John's or other things that have influenced me in my life. Um, I, I've just seen time and again that there are things that seem to me to be of benefit in the world that um, either we're not currently able to measure or even wouldn't be possible to measure or just intrinsically impossible to measure. I'm not sure. I'm not really interested in debating with someone like which is which, but in any case, they, like, um, I don't know, a, a good example would be for meta practice, right? Like I've seen time and again, run this experiment many thousands of times how um, the, the positive impacts that me having a loving thought or feeling will have on myself and others. It's like, you know, there's many different kinds of impacts that can happen, but there are clear causal connections that seem to be positive for me and for others. And like, if someone wants to disagree with me, I'm pretty comfortable saying, nope, you're just wrong. You haven't done meta practice. You don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I don't know. Being um, that strong about something is somewhat uncomfortable for me, but you know what? I, I've done a lot of meta practice. I've seen this is a good thing for me and for other people. And um, is that measurable? I don't think so. At least certainly like we can't measure that uh, right now. I think maybe we could measure it. I'm not sure. I'd be interested if we could. I, I, that's not one that I would be uh, invested in saying, oh no, it's intrinsically immeasurable. But um, I think there are things that can't be measured that are still beneficial and um, in any case, um, I don't know, like, 
like when you're moved by a beautiful piece of art or a beautiful song, how, how would you measure that? Like mm-hmm. what, what measurement or number or unit would, would, would convey the depth and breadth of what that meant to you personally? It's just that, that it's a nonsensical question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I've seen so many of those kinds of things that, that seem to me to be beneficial and either aren't, we're not currently able to measure, or it seems to me like you couldn't or wouldn't even want to, it doesn't even make sense to, and yet still seem beneficial. And so um, I don't know, to the extent that something is measurable, and is positive, like, yes, of course I endorse that. Like more malaria nests for people. Like, yes, that seems good. I'm not, I'm not going to debate that with someone. And uh, I don't know, has someone seen a piece of art or listened to a song? Like those are beautiful and they inspire you and bring you to life and make you see things differently and maybe help you through a difficult period in, in your life or, you know, move you to do something beautiful that you might not do otherwise. It's hard to predict in advance what the exact impact will be on a specific person, but like, uh, the benefits are, are, are numerous and widespread and help so many people and in so many ways. And, um, you know, I think uh, one of the biggest benefits that I see from art is just like, I don't know, of any kind. I mean, I, I do visual art myself these days, but certainly this certainly seems to be true for music or poetry or what have you, um, is, is can, can I or an artist accurately convey or fully convey or expressively convey what it means to be them and who they are and how they see the world and how they want to show up. Can they do that? And, and, and when you do that, one, that's, that's, that's like a, a healing, clarifying, beneficial, resoundingly beautiful experience just for the artists themselves, the person that created the thing, right? Like that is already a good thing. But then it turns out because the, like the more accurately or fully or beautifully you convey that, like I, I, I hesitate a little bit at the word accurately. It's like, eh, I don't know. But anyway, something like that, the more you fully you convey what that is for you, even though it's already been beneficial for you, that's going to resonate for other people that have had a similar experience or, or, or maybe could have a similar experience or have never seen it that way. It's like that has uh, impacts on people that are just also beautiful, also transformative of like, wow, that's exactly how this, I see the world. And yet I don't have the visual skill or the musical skill or what have you to convey that. Or like, oh, wow, that's an experience someone else had that I've never had myself, but now I'm seeing that a whole other kind of experience is possible that I never would have known otherwise. And, and even uh, like this, this quality of wisdom, right. That comes through contemplative practice or just even just living life fully. I think a really beautiful piece of art can convey a deep insight or understanding of reality that is wise and beneficial to share and to the right person, a piece of art or music can can just totally shatter your perception and open you up to something you never would have seen otherwise or open your heart up or help you feel something or see or understand something that, that can be hard to put into words and yet it is no less real. It is extremely real and it can change it can change everything for you, how you see yourself, how you experience yourself, how you interact with other people, how you show up in the world, what you understand the world and your life to be. Some of these things are very tricky to, to put into words. Um, and yet 
they are no less transformative for that. So I think that's something I've seen as possible, certainly from perceiving other people's art, but you know, that I aspire to with my own art as well as first and foremost to, to, to just convey something truthfully for myself about myself and my experience of the world, but also can that touch someone else's heart in a, in a positive resonant way. That's, that's a beautiful experience when that happens. Um, it's interesting uh, that you're using the word beautiful a lot, uh, because like, I feel like some of the music that I make is like death metal. And, mm. um, it's funny because, you know, uh, for any person who might hear it and be like, oh, this is excellent. I love this. This is hitting all my aesthetic buttons. There's like at least two or three other people who are like, why is my heart rate elevated? I don't feel good. I feel anxious. <laughs> uh -huh. and so it's like, um, I know that I might be creating some impact, but it's also like, uh, there's a potential sort of negative impact that I mean is you know it's like maybe a fleeting negative impact but um I don't know like uh, I'm sort of surprised to see that aesthetics in general haven't veered towards the beautiful like there's a huge amount of uh, maybe it's on the same spectrum of beauty but it's like the negative sense of it there's a huge amount of art that is like negatively beautiful mm -hmm. um and I imagine that would be somewhat negatively impactful so like um I don't know I, there's no real question there, but I'm curious to hear what it brings up in your mind in terms of, uh, you know, art as service. Hmm. Well, it brings up a few things. I mean, one is that these things are causally hard to predict, and maybe this relates to whether they're measurable or not, but it's like, it's hard to know, very broadly speaking, what the consequences of your actions are going to be. And you can sort of predict some of them, but there's so many people out there and and things can affect things in ways you can't anticipate. And that's not to say you shouldn't, um, how to put this, when you become aware of the complexity and possibility of the way that your actions can impact others, it could be tempting to be like, oh, well, fuck it. I'm just going to do what I feel like. It's like, no, I, I would not endorse that. You should care about your actions. You should care about the consequences of your actions. You should try to anticipate them. You should avoid doing things that you know will hurt people. You should actively try to do things that will be good for people. And yet it is still complex. It is hard to predict. And art is one of the hardest things to predict. Like, I don't know. I, it, yeah, I could imagine death metal negatively impacting someone of like, oh, this is hurtful to hear, or not pleasant to hear or something. And at the same time, this is something else that came up is like, I, I right now in my life, am at a stage where I'm really trying to come to terms with um, this dark aspect of myself and, and, and like various insights coming up that feel very dark to me and like uh, uncomfortable things about myself and others and the world. That's like, I'm trying to wrestle with that and integrate that with some of the other things like, you know, loving people and caring and wanting to help people. Like, it's not easy to do that. And I imagine that um, at that stage in my life, like right now that I'm in, like maybe death metal would be more resonant for me than it was before where I'm like, oh, this is just not my thing. And um, I don't know. I think I'm also reminded of um, the art of, of Joan that you, that you, you know, you had her on your show. It's like her art, there's a lot of like, I haven't seen a lot of it, but like from what I've seen, there's a lot of like darkness and there's like sex and like weird symbols and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was like, that very much um, seems to me the like, yeah, my experience of it was, oh, this is showing me something that like I am hungry for right now. This, this, this sort of like dark evolution thing that's happening within me, like accessing darkness. I'm, I'm like very hungry for things that can show me what that darkness is and like honor that that's there and show that it's not in conflict with this love and light and beauty and care and ethics that are also within me. And I, I saw that in her art and, um, 
that was extremely resonant for me. And there's there's things that I could see her conveying that sort of impacted me in a felt way that um, I don't know if you could do that with other mediums. I mean, she she just does it incredibly through the visual medium. And um, I don't know, yeah, that's complex. Like she probably, she doesn't know me. She doesn't know that it was gonna have that impact on me, but it did. Um, it's just true that it did impact me in that way, even though she couldn't predict it. And yeah, there's probably one or five or 10 or 50 or hundred people that like have hated her art and be like, oh, what is this? I mean, she talked on the show about like getting banned from various social media platforms. Like that, mm -hmm. you know, probably there are people that don't like that and it doesn't resonate for, or even that it hurts. And like, I don't know. Um, I think if push comes to shove there, you just have to express what's real for you and what's honest for you. And she's certainly doing that. And I imagine you're doing that with your music and I'm trying to do that with my different projects and my art and um, that's a tricky line to walk, like really caring about the impacts that your actions have. And at the same time, like I have to be honest and authentic to myself and I try my best, but it is certainly not easy. Mm -hmm. I guess, uh, I mean, that makes me think of just like, are you sort of bringing more nuance and complexity into the world or are you bringing more sort of like, you know, loving kindness into the world? And both of them are positive things potentially, but maybe the the complexity could have a broader range of sort of, uh, you know, uh, subjective effects in terms of like valence and, you mm. know, uh, like you might have a tragic story and a tragic story might not make you feel good, but it might have a sort of lesson that you take away that later on will be a positive influence or something. But, um, uh, I guess the last thing I have here um, on my list of topics is to talk about movement and Tai Chi and, mm -hmm. um, like I saw that you've been doing uh, some of these Edo Portal uh, challenges. Um, and so I, I guess like uh, I'm I'm not very hip to the movement world, uh, but like I'm curious if there are any sort of like modern Tai Chi scenes that are interesting. Um, if Tai Chi, like, is it like, has it modernized or have there been any interesting developments or is it still kind of like just like tried and true traditional mm. stuff, um, just anything that comes to mind in terms of movement and Tai Chi that you want to talk to me about? Hmm. Well, I don't know too much about modern Tai Chi uh, developments. I, I, I mean, I've just been doing Tai Chi for a bit over a year now, maybe a year and a half. And like, I don't know, I'm a very aware, aware of various contemporary teachers and that sort of thing, but I wouldn't know enough to say like, oh, these developments or something. I think um, maybe just more broadly, you know, I used to be very sedentary. I mean, in the era where I would like read books and stuff and like I, I, I hated like gym class and I avoided doing sports. And then um, at the monastery, I had to I had to move my body every day. There was like a movement period and it was like, no, you have to exercise. I just had to do that for years. And over time, I just like really fell in love with it. And it was like, oh, this is a good thing. And like gym class and the sports in high school just weren't my thing. It was like, this is not the type of movement that I enjoy, but I found different types of movement that I really do enjoy. And I've seen the value of them and really enjoyed them. And yeah, again, I, I'm, I'm definitely mediocre with the movement practices and yet they're so enjoyable. They like bring me into my body. They help me take care of my body. Um, they feel really good and, and increasingly are part of how I express myself, right? Like I've made a few meta music videos and I love those. And I make, I run these meta dance parties and it's like um, dancing feels really important and, and Tai Chi feels really important as well. I think those are maybe, I was also very interested in running for a while. Like I sort of self-taught myself to be uh, like a, 
competitive against myself runner. Like I got better and better mm -hmm. at it. Uh, and, and actually I ran a couple of races and did quite well in rural Vermont. So it was like, you know, uh, it's rural Vermont, but I, you know, got first place and I raced for my age and stuff. Um, but, um, Awesome. I don't know. I've sort of injured my knee and uh, leg, and so I run less than I used to. But but tai chi and dance are both things that I love, and um, I don't know. It's about feeling good in my body. It's about taking care of my body, and also I'd say it's about learning about my body and expressing myself through my body. And um, yeah, similar to what I was saying about visual art, there's ways in which I can express aspects of myself through movement and through dance that I couldn't do through visual art or through um, my words. And so that feels important uh, to share with the world. Like, I don't know, it's just occurring to me now that like the thing that I want to share with the world about loving kindness and the Brahma Viharas, in some ways it's just boring and functional of like, hey, here's what the technique is and here's how you do it. And I think I'm like actually part of the reason I teach it is I think I'm good at explaining that sort of thing. And I wish that someone had explained it to me when I started the way that I explain it to other people, it's like, I don't know, I think people could teach it better. So I try to teach it well. And yet the thing I really want to express is, is something that I can only express, but you know, like through my movement, through uh, dance, through uh, these music videos that I made, through dance parties that I run, it's like, th this is an embodied, lively thing that has to be demonstrated um, not just through words or thoughts, but also through motion. And that's something I, that I want to be sharing with the world. Awesome. Um, with the, like the meta dance parties, um, I guess, like, what does that realistically look like? Because like, I imagine that people who are coming into that space, you know, they're going to be like, their whole thing is going to be modulated by that. Um, what types of, uh, I guess, like, uh, reception has that gotten? I imagine mm -hmm. positive, but um, I'm just curious, like what it looks like, uh, you know, in experience. Yeah, I'd say the way that I want to run them, there's sort of two phases of I want to um, have a guided meditation and show people, hey, here's what loving kindness is. Let's practice it. Let's come into these thoughts and feelings together. And then let's seamlessly transition into dance, into movement with really good music playing in the background. Ideally music that's sort of conducive to loving kindness and to these loving thoughts and feelings, which is a whole other thing. I'd like, I'd like there to be more music that's sort of conducive to it, um, kind of a high standard for what it should be. But I try my best and with the existing music and I'd like to make more music that's sort of fits that bar. But in any case, then it's a dance party. And the idea is either way, whether it's still formal meditation or it's movement, can we have these loving thoughts and feelings? Can we feel them in the body? And you know, when it's the dance portion, can we express that with our body? And um, it's been very favorably received so far. I mean, people love the meditation, people love the dancing. And I think it's still very early. I, I, I think, um, you know, I've run, I don't know, five or six of these so far, and I'd like to run more of them. And um, uh, I foresee that as I run more of them, people will be better at meta practice and be able to bring that into the dance parties more and more. And, and I mean, meta is just such a social thing because it involves the heart and that that's an emotional interpersonal region of the body and the mind. And you can feel it when other people are doing meta and when multiple people are doing meta together, it just explodes. And so if multiple people are doing that together on the dance floor with this meta music, I mean, it's, it's, it's already happening at the parties I run, to be sure. It's not that it's not happening, but I think there's room to grow there. And I mean, really love, as far as I see it, is infinite. There's just so much love that you can feel and express and participate in. And 
more people doing that on the dance floor more fully. Like the, I, I just know that there are going to be dance parties that I'll run that I'll go to where it's like people show up and they already know how to do meta. They already can feel it in their hearts. They can already just turn the volume up quite a bit and then they're doing it together and the music's really good and it's just like <laughs> you know and and i think coming back to magic i think that has real causal impacts in the world i think it has very significant causal impacts in the world and i'm very excited by that as well and so um that's one thing i see developing i also see again the possibility to make more music that's like in a genre where it's intended that the music is for this kind of a dance party. And so it's still like, I, I think it would sound like Deep House or Trance or something, like a specific genre that I think is really good, but the lyrics are about Metta and loving kindness and the Brahma Viharas. They're conducive to that. They're not about romantic love. And, and then the mood is conducive to it, right? Like I love EDM and house and stuff that's like dark or somber and melancholy or something. And yet that's not the mood that you want at one of these dance parties. You want something like lively and fun and loving and, and, and joyful and, um, you know, very like pleasant melodies and that sort of thing. And so finding that exact mix of music is hard now. Basically you have to go for like good EDM that's about romantic love, but the lyrics are vague enough that it's not obvious it's exclusively about that, or you can sort of cross apply it. It's like, oh, that's still not quite the thing. And so I'd like to more music that's like specifically about these things that sounds amazing. And I would love to have that whole genre sort of kick, get kickstarted, yeah. Um, it, hearing you talk about this, like I can't help but sort of like put a music theory lens to it, and so I'm like, how how does one create this? And so, um, I mean, like I I'm getting the sense that like when you say like you know somber versus like something that's more conducive to loving kindness, like I'm just sort of imagining like a brighter tonality. But um, I mean, is that fair to say? Like uh, like is loving kindness by default sort of a bright quality tonally? You know, I, I know a bit of music theory, but probably enough to say for sure, but not enough to say for sure. But that that sounds likely. I think I think you could actually have like compassion or Karuna music that was darker and that would be like more fitting for that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's like it's like friendliness and goodwill towards yourself and others. And that's that feeling is bright and happy and loving and expansive and it makes sense if you're combining that with music to have something at least I don't know to my aesthetic preferences with something that's like bright and poppy and like yeah um like I don't know I imagine again my music theory is very hand wavy but I imagine more like major scales and stuff like that of like oh mm -hmm. it's not it's you know we're not uh I know there I mean if you just listen to EDM I mean there's ones where it's like you know like it's these like deep thick bassy like tones and I love that and yet that's not the thing mm -hmm. that uh you know it's more like upbeat and like a fast rhythm and like happy and playful and light and that that that's the kind of stuff that I think would work really well for it do you see like um you know I mean like I feel like uh if you think about like rave culture there's like some very fast types of uh music that like maybe are like too fast for loving kindness type of events, but um, like what do you think about sort of the pacing of something um, in an ideal sort of like a dance party like this? Does it like, does the pace, like the tempo change over time? Uh, is it, you know, generally like the same sort of ballpark area or um, I don't know if that, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't been to too many raves. This is some. This is like something I would like to fix. I would like to go to more of these things. I just haven't. I you know I was training in a monastery for years. You know I have right. an excuse here. But uh, 
I, I think um, maybe this comes back again to like individual preferences and aesthetics. I think um, I personally love to like just dance really hard for hours at like a very fast rhythm. And like, I don't know, my, my, like uh, when I'm in shape, my like cardiovascular system is in good shape. And like, I can do that for two or three hours or whatever. And like, I love this like fast stuff and maybe probably not as fast as what you're thinking of, but like, you know, like a good solid maintainable rhythm for that you can do for a couple of hours. I think in practice, um, this is something my friend Michael Ashcroft pointed out to me, but like, it can be useful to like have, uh, you know, a slow start and like have a slow end and then like have various like breaks in the middle where it's like, oh, a little slower and like have the rhythms kind of like ebb and flow so that people can get breaks and it's not like too intense or overwhelming. And I don't know, maybe makes the like really fast parts more enjoyable because like, oh yeah, this is, this is uh, like a, a nice rhythm. And I think that's probably a good good sort of way to approach it for for actually these parties of like having variations and faster and slower parts and maybe one song that's really fast and one that's really slow and having a start and end and that kind of thing uh, that that seems reasonable but I know for myself when I'm because I just will go out and dance myself sometimes and put a playlist on that I make and like I'll just I'll just go for it for like an hour or two or three and that's that's my idea of a good Saturday night is like go out and dance by myself on a grassy field somewhere to some songs I really like and just go for it uh yeah this is maybe like getting a little bit specific about my sort of perspective on music but um like I mean I just I guess dance music is so often regularly like you know the 4-4 pulse and I'm curious like provided that it grooves is something angular conducive for um uh loving kindness angular or, or would it make more sense to have sort of like a a regularity of it like um like because i mean you can have something that grooves that is angular or sort of jagged but is jaggedness sort of by default outside of the aesthetic realm of hmm. kindness music hmm. i don't know that i know what that is uh fail, failing that though i think uh i mean i don't know i mean very broadly any loving kindness music like should just have goodwill towards self and others baked into it and it's like if it fits that i mean hell you can have like country music which i'm not particularly fond of or like i don't rap which i do quite like but it's not something i listen to a lot of or like i don't know maybe you could have death metal that's like we must love all beings you know like i don't know why not if that's your thing like go for it um i like edm and trance and deep house and stuff like that and so that's kind of what i'm thinking of but like i don't know if it's if it's if you like feel inspired to make this kind of music and you're like yeah i want to do that and my thing is like angular death metal then like be my guest like for the benefit of all beings go forth and prosper you know yeah i mean i i won't lie i'm trying to sort of conceive of like what this project would look like uh for somebody yeah. to you know but um interesting uh yeah i i guess maybe not death metal but uh yeah uh -huh. <laughs> love metal <laughs> i know i'm excited i'm on board never mind this edm stuff we need some love metal <laughs> Well, um, yeah, I guess that's all I have to ask. Do you have any other things that you want to close with or say before we sign off? Mm. No, I enjoyed this. I think uh, I enjoyed talking about all of the things we talked about and I like your interviewing style and uh, it's enjoyable to share things. I think, I think when you have a conversation like this, it's like, yeah, I don't know if it's an interview, which this was like things come out of whoever's being interviewed that you 
they might not have expected. And that certainly happened for me. And uh, also just enjoyed seeing the way there's something about the way your mind works when you ask questions that I thought was really interesting. I, <laughs> I, I don't think I could describe it yet, but I, I liked seeing that. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was fun to talk with you. So thank you for having me on. Yeah. Thanks so much. Um, yeah. And I mean, I feel like maybe I should say some sort of nice meta thing, but that's probably more your department. Uh, do you have any <laughs> uh, loving kindness sign off that uh, you want to leave listeners with? Hmm. Uh, well, you know, I, I the standard one is may all beings be happy. And that's a good one. But I, I personally really like to have custom phrases that are uh, specific to a specific circumstance. So, um, if you enjoyed this conversation, may you take that joy into your day and may you give similar love and attention to yourself and those you encounter. Wonderful. Cool. Well, Tasha and Fogelman, thanks so much for talking to me. I will talk to you in the future. Okay, thanks, John.